How many of you have uh, raised an Ebenezer this week? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have. Uh, I remember as a kid singing that hymn and thinking, why did Scrooge make it in the hymn book? Because <laughs> I was a, you know, curious young man. But to help those of you probably already know, but just to get you up to speed, Ebenezer is a compound word. Eben means stone. Azer means help or assistance or deliverance. So it makes a lot more sense when you understand what the hymn writer is implying. Now, good news for you, you don't need to pay any attention to the bulletin because the bulletin is not the message I'm going to preach today. I committed a, a faux pas uh, in my preparation by not thinking through you always need to set the table before you provide the meal and so one of the ways to set the table is to prepare us for what's coming next and that is uh, the book of Romans but in order to prepare us for the book of Romans I'm doing a short mini-series on what I think are helpful ways in learning to think about the gospel and ways in which we can be renewed and refreshed and enlivened and animated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you have a Bible, now would be the best time to turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and our scripture reading will be verses 3 through 6. Colossians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Hear now God's word. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so Paul does two things here. He really tells us what a real Christian is. A real Christian is someone who has faith in Jesus Christ, who has a love for the brothers and whose ultimate hope is in heaven, that is the Lord Jesus himself, who will come back and deliver us from this ridiculous mess that we are in in this world. But he then tells us that the gospel is that which produces that faith, that love, and that hope, and that the gospel flourishes. And so that is a fascinating passage, which we will have more to say on after we pray. So let us pray. Father, we ask today for help. We thank you that the Holy Spirit indwells each one of us who has turned from our sin and set our hearts and hopes upon you and extended the empty hand to receive the free gift of eternal life and salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we would ask today that the Holy Spirit would enable us to listen, to hear, 
to uh, enable us to remove and, and set aside everything that would hinder us from hearing the most important thing we're going to hear this week, and that's when you speak to us through your word. And so we pray your blessings upon it. For Christ's sake, amen. One of the most important things in the life of a Christian is learning to keep the main thing the main thing. Let me say that again. One of the most important things in the life of a Christian, whether you're a brand new believer, whether you've been a believer for 25, 35, 45 years, you have to learn how to keep the main thing the main thing. In my understanding of Scripture, the main thing is the gospel. Because the gospel is not merely the way we enter spiritual life and spiritual reality and a relationship with God, but the gospel is also the way we travel. It is the pathway we walk upon. It is the way we make progress in the Christian life. And so, so many believe that the gospel is something for unbelievers, but it really doesn't have much to say to me. And if you're one of those people, I hope to convince you this morning that you need the gospel more than you need your next breath. That it is for us the power of God unto salvation. Whether that salvation deals with the penalty of our sin. We need our sins forgiven. We need the righteousness of God in order to enter his presence. Or whether that salvation deals with overcoming the power of sin. In sanctification. Justification freed from the penalty. Sanctification uh, becoming more and more freed from the power of indwelling sin and ultimately glorification delivered from the very presence of sin altogether. Uh, once we receive our new bodies and are glorified with Jesus, we will no longer sin and we will then know in fullness what we only know in part now that the most miserable thing in our life is our sin and the uh, effects that fall out from it. So let's talk about gospel renewal, uh, and I want to make a case of it before um, and sort of set the table before we actually get into it. So three things I'm going to talk about today. First, why we need the gospel, uh, the need of gospel renewal, the need to continuously hear it, think about it, apply it to our lives, why we need it. Number two, the essence of it. This answers the question of the what of the gospel, the essence of gospel renewal. What are we talking about? And finally, the uh, way of gospel renewal, which answers the how question. So we have why, what, and how. And let's jump right in, okay? Gospel renewal is a life-changing recovery of the gospel and personal gospel renewal means that the gospel doctrines of sin and grace are actually experienced not just known merely intellectually but experienced uh, more fully. It includes an awareness and conviction of one's own sin and alienation from God and it comes from seeing ourselves 
uh, seeing in ourselves deeper layers of self-justification, unbelief, and self-righteousness than we have ever seen before. As Jack Miller used to say, one of my favorite people, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are. And one of the signs in your life that you are experiencing gospel renewal is God begins to peel back the layers. The Holy Spirit begins to peel back the layers and show us our sin, and we become convicted about it. When I first became a Christian, I was 19, so that's what? Almost, I'm not 80. (laughs) Closer to 70. This is a long time ago. Maybe 50 years ago, I became a Christian. I had no clue of how deep it went in my life. I knew I had done some bad things. I know I had done some regrettable things I was ashamed of. I knew that there were ways in which I should be a better person. I had no idea that the, the sin Jesus reacted to the most vehemently was the sin of self-justification and self-righteousness. Who did Jesus battle with? Religious people. Religious people more than anyone else. He engaged religious people like the Pharisees uh, who were constantly dogging him and dogging every step and and the word uh, was not getting through. And so the gospel is for us a uh, main thing issue. It is keeping the main thing the main thing. Uh, There is a new grasp as you grow in Christ, of the wonder of his grace. As we shed those attitudes and practices and learn to rest in Jesus alone for salvation. One of the hardest things to die in us is our conception of goodness. We think we're good people who occasionally do something bad. That is not what the Bible says to us. The Bible says to us that we are broken people, sinful people, rebellious people, people filled with unbelief, people filled with resistance toward God who occasionally might happen upon uh, goodness by accident. We're in a desperate situation. And our need for gospel renewal continues. The more I see my sin, the more I see of Jesus. And the more I see of Jesus and who he is and what he means to me and what he is to me, the more I see my sin. The gospel gives me the courage to live with authenticity, to face who I really am, to see what's really wrong with me. And I sort of lose this notion of having to fix everybody else in the world. Jonathan Edwards used to say, spiritual pride is a very deceitful thing. He said, spiritual pride is always suspecting everyone else around me of being less than me. He said, but in reality, gospel humility is seeing it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of what? Prayer. And so gospel renewal is the way in which we keep the main thing the main thing. Um... And so we have a new clarity about what the gospel is, what it means, and we uh, experience that through uh, God working deeply in our hearts. Um, Gospel renewal is the intensification of the normal um, operations of the Holy Spirit 
conviction of sin, regeneration, sanctification, assurance of grace through the ordinary means of grace, which is the preaching of the word, prayer, and the sacraments. And so as we think about gospel renewal, over time, all churches, no matter how sound their theology, tend to lose sight of the uniqueness of the gospel and fall into practices that conform more to religions or to irreligion. There is a gravitational pull in every person's heart, in every church, away from the reality of the gospel. And doctrinal instruction loses sight of how much doctrine plays a role in the gospel message and their moral instruction is not grounded in and motivated by the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We just had a Sunday school class on the Athanasian Creed and we looked at uh, some the, the Chalcedon and the uh, Nicene Creed and others and I was sitting back in the back thinking what is the point of all this? which is what I used to think in seminary every day. I would sit in seminary and I'd go, so what? So what? You say, you're such a smart, you know? And I say, yeah, not nearly as bad as I used to be, but what is the so what of it? And Rick agrees, he wanted to say it, never got to it, but he believes it just like I do. The moment you tamper with the person of Jesus Christ in any way, you have lost the gospel. You have lost its power in your experience. And so all those details, maybe a lot of details to some of you, but they are incredibly important because every heresy is cruel because it distorts the gospel and deconstructs and damages the very power of the good news itself, which is a person who accomplished a work that will forever change us and make us right with himself. And so the gospel is a set of beliefs, but it isn't merely a set of beliefs. It, it uh, is a power itself that changes profoundly and continually. And without this kind of application of the gospel, mere teaching, preaching, baptizing, and catechizing are not sufficient. For example, I have been in the presence of men, theologically speaking, who have forgotten more than I'll ever know. And without being able to look inside their hearts and judge, but by listening to them for a long time, I've come to the conclusion they don't really get the gospel yet because whatever they know is really their functional righteousness. This is what makes them okay and better than you. And we all have that going on in our experience, but gospel renewal exposes ways in which we do that. Uh, one of my favorite teachers, who is a church historian and also a Jonathan Edwards scholar is by the name of Richard Lovelace. Now, if you look him up, you're going to find another Richard Lovelace who was a poet. He's not who I'm talking about. This guy taught church history at Gordon-Conwell, and here's what he said. 
he concluded that while Christians know intellectually that their justification, that is their acceptance by God, is the basis for their sanctification, that is their actual moral behavior, in their actual day-to-day -day existence, they rely on their sanctification, moral behavior, for their justification, uh, their acceptance with God. And so... Um, drawing their assurance and acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their most recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. In other words, gospel renewal is necessary because the default mode of the human heart is always works righteousness. It is. And works righteousness is I work, I put God in debt, and he owes me an abundant life, the way I define an abundant life. It is having a relationship based with God, based on what I do, so that he owes me blessing. And Lovelace, in his appraisal of the church, saw more of that than he did the gospel. Christians often believe in their heads, Jesus accepts me, therefore I will live a good life. But their hearts and actions are functioning practically on the principle, I have a good life, therefore Jesus accepts me. Those are radically different. The results of this inversion are sort of a smug self-satisfaction. And if we feel we're living up to the standards uh, or insecurity and anxiety if we feel we're not living up to the standards. In either case, the results, Lovelace says, are a defensiveness and a critical spirit and racial or cultural ethnocentricity to, centricity to bolster a sense of righteousness, an allergy to change, and other forms of spiritual deadness, both individual and corporate. In other words, what he says, how do you know you need gospel renewal? Are you becoming more and more critical of other people? Especially your brothers and sisters at church. Just seems like you have a propensity to, to nitpick or isolate whatever's wrong with them and focus upon that while at the same time having a smugness inside. I'm glad I'm not like that. You have that? Do you ever have just a really critical spirit? You, you never ever see anything but what is wrong? And we see that so often. That's a person in need of the gospel. That's a person who doesn't realize that. Are you a racist in any way? That's because you don't understand the gospel. Are you rigid and inflexible towards you? That's because you don't understand the gospel. In sharp contrast, the gospel of sheer grace offered to hope, hopeless sinners will humble and comfort us all at once and the results of believing the gospel are joy and a willingness to admit faults and a graciousness with everyone around you and a lack of being totally curved in on yourself in self-absorption you say well pastor that's a mouthful it is it's ugly isn't it it's just ugly 
But the beauty of gospel centrality, m believing grace makes you more gracious. Uh, I don't care if you have all the petals on your tulip. If you're, or on your, yeah, your flower of the tulip, you can still be a nasty jerk. And I've known too many of those. Been one too. But I've known too many of those kind of people. But when the gospel comes, when the gospel is renewing you, you're a very different kind of person in your approach. Y you get out of yourself. You're delivered from that self-absorption, that curved inness. That's what Luther said. The problem with us all is incurvatus in se. We are curved in upon ourselves. And the only power in the universe that can curve us out is the power of the gospel of salvation. That's the power that does it. And so that's the need for gospel renewal. We need it daily. We need it often. Martin Luther said it this way. Before men, you may boast or glory. You may say, I have done the best to everybody. And if anything is still lacking, I will supply that too. But if you want to face God, you had better leave your glorying and boasting at home and see that from justice you appeal to mercy. Let him who will begin and try to do this, he will see and appreciate how very difficult and hard a man who has been steeped in works righteousness all his lifetime finds it to pull himself out of it and wholeheartedly to rise upward through faith in this mediator. Luther says, for fully 20 years, I myself have now preached and practiced this with studying and writing. Therefore, I should in fairness have come out of it. I should have come out of it. Yet, I always feel that old, tenacious, vile habit. I want to haggle with God and bring something along so that he has to give me his grace in return for my holiness. It just does not seem right to me that I should rely so entirely in nothing but grace, and yet it should and cannot be otherwise. The mercy seat alone must have value and permanence, for God himself has set it up. Without it, no man will ever come before God. And so gospel renewal is really echoing the sentiments of the reformer Martin Luther here. It is so difficult. We have gospel amnesia. <laughs> we wake up every day and we forget it. And so we're always needing to renew our understanding with the realities of the gospel. Often sanctification, it isn't only this. Our growth in grace isn't only this, but it's part of this. It's returning back to our justification and our assurance that in Christ we are safe and loved and cared for and adopted into the family and dearly, dearly precious to our God. And so gospel renewal needs to happen frequently. And so the renewal is a, a powerful thing. Um, often, uh, because we don't really believe the gospel deep down, because we are living as if we save ourselves, our hearts find ways of either rejecting or re-engineering the doctrine 
or of the mental subscription to the doctrine while functionally trusting and resting in our own moral and doctrinal goodness as in dead orthodoxy. So that's point number one. We need the gospel. You've got to listen faster if we're ever getting out of here. Point number two, the essence of gospel renewal. This doesn't answer the question of why we need it. This answers the question of what it is. Renewal is necessary because religion, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, is as different from the gospel, I am accepted by God through Christ Jesus, therefore I obey, but is such an effective counterfeit. We are wired that way. We are hardwired that way since the fall. We have in us a, a covenant of works kind of mindset that thinks if I get it right, God will owe me and he has to bless me. And though these systems of motivation and purpose have utterly different lineages, two people basing their lives on these two systems may sit right beside each other in church. Both strive to obey the law of God, to pray, to give generously, and to be good family members, yet they do so out of radically different motives in radically different spirits, resulting in radically different kinds of interpersonal character. I am speaking of religion here. Religion makes people mean. It makes people violent. And the gospel is not religion. There's irreligion, irreligion, which basically says, I don't believe God is relevant I don't have a relationship with God. I don't even know whether God exists. But I'm the master. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fate. I make my own morality. I make my own laws. I live however I want to. And that's my religion. That's irreligion. And that person is attempting by that stance to find righteousness. And he or she never will. Nothing but frustration. On the other hand, there's religion. And religion is, I need to work. I need to be a good person. I need to strive to do all of these things to accrue enough merit to where God will look upon me with favor. That's not the gospel. And so the gospel is a third thing, a tertium quid. And there are basically three ways of responding to God. Christians identify two ways, follow him and do his will or reject him and do your own thing. Ultimately, that's true, but there are actually two ways to reject God that need to be distinguished from one another. You can reject God by rejecting his law and living any way you want to, and you can also reject God by embracing and obeying God's law so as to earn your salvation. What I have found about religious people is they don't have much use for Jesus. Why? What do they need him for? It's a project of self-salvation. It's a project of self-justification. So there's not much need for Jesus. There's not much talk about Jesus. There's not much clinging to Jesus. There's not that much being excited about Jesus. There's no repentance in these people, none whatsoever. Because to repent would be to admit need, and I can't admit need. If I'm irreligious or religious and I admit need, it totally destroys the whole foundation of what I'm trying to do. But the gospel freely shows us how desperately 
We need Jesus. You cannot earn your salvation. We all know that. The problem is that people who are religious, who reject the gospel in favor of moralism, look as if they're trying to do God's will. Consequently, they are not just two ways to respond to God, but three, irreligion, religion, and the gospel. Irreligion is avoiding God as Lord and Savior by ignoring him altogether. Religion or moralism is avoiding God as Lord and Savior by developing a moral righteousness, presenting it to God in an effort to show that he owes you. The gospel, however, has nothing to do with our developing righteousness and then presenting it to God uh, in any way. The gospel has nothing to do with our developing a righteousness we give to God so that he owes us. It is God developing and giving us righteousness through Jesus Christ. The gospel differs from both religion and irreligion, from both moralism and relativism. This theme runs through the entire Bible. Even the deliverance of the children of Israel uh, from Egypt and marching them into uh, across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, and God gifting his people with the law of God. The law of God wasn't given to Israel as a means of establishing their righteousness. God's deliverance from Egypt was their righteousness and their salvation. The law was given to them to teach them how to live before the face of God as a redeemed people. They misused it. Terribly. And so it runs throughout the Bible. If you look at the life of Christ, it runs throughout his ministry. In the New Testament, the three ways appear, as we shall see, most in Romans 1, chapters 1 through 4. Paul states at the end of that, and he shows how the pagan and immoral Gentiles are lost and alienated from God. And in Romans 2 through chapter 3, Paul counterintuitively states that the moral believing Jews are lost and alienated, alienated from God as well. What shall we do? There's a better way. And the better way is through grace and faith. Throughout the Gospels, the three ways, religion, irreligion, and the Gospel are repeatedly depicted in Jesus' ministry, whether a Pharisee and a tax collector or a respectable crowd and a man possessed by a demon, in every instance, the less moral, less religious person connects more readily to Jesus. Because if you're religious or you're irreligious, you think you believe the lie that you don't need him. You don't need him. And so... The essence of gospel renewal is the following. And again, I'm going to quote. I hate to quote these people because I know you tend to lose your train of thought. But if he didn't say it so much better than I do, I wouldn't do it. Here's what Lovelace says. Only a fraction, a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to the doctrine but in their day-to-day -day existence, they rely on sanctification for justification, drawing their assurance and acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their most recent religious uh, performance, the relative infrequency of sin and disobedience. 
Few enough know how to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. You are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the holy, alien righteousness of Christ is the only ground for acceptance. Relaxing in that quality of trust, which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. Luther called it an alien righteousness. Why'd he do that? Does that mean he thought it was from outer space? No, he meant it's, not, it's a righteousness that's alien to me other than me because it isn't a righteousness I produce. It is a righteousness I receive. God clothes me in the garb of Christ's righteousness. And when he looks at me, he sees me in union with Christ. And in union with Christ, I bear the beauty and the glory of the righteousness of Christ. He gave me, he lived for me. He accomplished obedience, perfect obedience, perfect personal, perpetual obedience for me and took my sin and gave me his righteousness. And that is the only thing that will free you from either religion or irreligion, because you're in one of the camps. Most people are in one of the camps. Most of what we have interpreted as a defect of sanctification in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves us and accepts us in Jesus apart from our present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure people. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and a defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races and other people in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. What an analysis. But it's so true. Either you're walking in the liberty and freedom of the gospel or you're just a stinker. You just stink the place up. And uh, that might not be how Luther would, Luther would say it that way. Calvin would never say it that way. Tim Posey would say it that way. Finally, the work of gospel renewal. How it happens. This is the last point. We have looked at and talked about the need for gospel renewal. We've also looked at the essence of gospel renewal, what it is, why we need it, and now we're going to talk about how it works. We will look at the work of the gospel, the practical ways and means in which the Holy Spirit brings lasting change to the lives of people. And the means of gospel renewal are, first of all, prayer. Prayer, extraordinary prayer seeking God's face, asking him to show you his gospel, asking him to open your eyes to see it, opening yourself up for the Lord to communicate with you the reality of the gospel. But the second is gospel rediscovery. You know, what happened at the Protestant Reformation was not that Martin Luther discovered the gospel. He did not. He rediscovered the gospel. You and I need to re rediscover the gospel constantly, along with prayer 
uh, is the recovery of its gospel, the gospel itself. Martin Lloyd-Jones has taught me a lot about this in his book, Revival, and he taught that the gospel emphasis of grace could be lost in several ways. He says a church may become heterodox, that is, uh, false doctrine, losing its grip on the orthodox tenets of theology that undergird the gospel, such as the Trinity, such as the deity and humanity of Christ, the wrath of God, and so on. It may turn its back on the very belief in justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, and even the need for conversion, and just follow Christ's example. That all strikes at the vitals of the reality of the gospel. But it's possible to subscribe to every orthodox doctrine and nevertheless fail to communicate the gospel to people's hearts in a way that brings about repentance, joy, and spiritual growth. One way that happens is through what Lloyd-Jones calls dead orthodoxy. What we want is live orthodoxy. What we often have is dead orthodoxy. There's a deadness to us, a coldness. Uh, 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 even though we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechism, even though we subscribe to all the creeds, so what? If that doesn't have the power of the gospel to melt your heart, it's the only thing that can melt the hardness. It's the only thing that can give life to the deadness of our heart is the Holy Spirit takes the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and brings it to bear upon our hearts. Then it comes together and boom, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Jack uh, Miller used to teach a course at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia on... Uh, evangelism and so the first day of the class he would have his students come in and he said the first thing we're going to do today is share the gospel with each other he said I want you to pair up and I want you to pretend that that other person is not a Christian and I want you to lead them to Christ he said out of 50 people maybe one could do it these are guys going to seminary to be pastors of churches. And not only, he said he had more conversions in that class than any class he'd ever taught. Guys who wanted to be preachers but didn't know Jesus. And so, when the gospel comes together with the power of the Holy Spirit, it does do amazing things. We can be doctrinally correct. We can be theologically correct. And that can be our functional righteousness. We walk around with our chest out. I'm reformed. Most people look at you and go, reformed what? Nobody in this room loves reformed theology any more than me, but it won't save you. Only Jesus will save you. It's helpful. It's a way to understand life in this world and the nature of God and I embrace it with all my heart but it is not my righteousness it is not at the end of the day which makes me okay and delivered the wonderful truth of the gospel is the only thing that makes me okay is that Jesus has taken my sins from me and taken them down into death and Jesus has given me the wonderful gift of his righteousness and God is crazy about me not because I'm good, I'm not. Not because I'm worthy, I'm not. 
Not because I try hard. I don't. But because I'm united to Jesus Christ by faith alone. That is the liberation. You don't hear this stuff. Try listening. I watch the religious channel sometimes, and I have to go outside and regurgitate most of the time. And I'm sitting there screaming at the TV, and my wife comes in. And she says, who are you talking to? I said, myself. Because once you begin to understand the gospel, not only do you see yourself, but you have a, a compassion for the lostness and brokenness of people. You see, it's not godly to hate Pharisees. It's not godly to hate Pharisees. Jesus loved Pharisees. How do I know that? Because he's always trying to expose their self-righteousness and drive them to the mercy of God. All right, so what are some of the signs of gospel renewal? Uh, well, I'll tell you one sign that is not a sign of gospel renewal. It's called Christian cannibalism. Have you ever heard of Christian cannibalism? I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper. I'm Some people thought that was cannibalism early on. Christian cannibalism is biting and devouring one another as it occurred in the church in Galatia. Paul says, I hear that you have so quickly departed from the gospel and now you believe another gospel and one of the signs of departing from the gospel or losing its power in your life is you are a snarky critical devourer of another person stop it repent try to go a week without doing it just try try it Sign up. I'm not going to gossip this week. I'm not going to criticize anybody. I'm not going to put anybody down. You don't stand taller than people because you cut their legs off. That's what that is, devouring people. And that will kill a church. It will kill a church quickly. We're to say things that edify, build up, and encourage. That's the reality of gospel renewal in our experience. And so... The way in which we can experience gospel renewal is learning how, and I know this is an overused phrase, and I say it with some reservation because there is a real truth in it. you got to learn how to counsel yourself and preach to yourself the gospel every day. Or you will end up in what John Bunyan called in the book Pilgrim's Progress, the slew of despond. You ever been in the slough of despond? It's a little song we used to sing in Cub Scouts when I was a kid called, Nobody Loves Me, Everybody Hates Me, Guess I'll Eat Some Worms. First you bite the heads off, then you... Oh, I won't go any further. <laughs> Worm theology. But there are times when, through the power of God's Spirit, we see it, we get it. Now... Let me say this without qualification. And if anybody differs with me, they don't really understand what I'm saying. Nobody here totally gets it. Nobody. We won't get it until we see him. Then we shall see him as he is and we shall know him as he knows us. 
but we get snippets of it. We get moments of it. We get vignettes of it. We get little pictures of it here and there. But the gospel is so liberating and free. I, I almost hate to have conversations when I, I, I've told you this before. Every time I go back to my hometown where I grew up and I see my brother, he'll tell me about all the guys in my hometown who see him and ask about me, who were my friends. And he said the first question they ask every single time, is Tim still religious? And if he's religious, what's he doing living in Las Vegas? Because there ain't no religious people there. I said, well, here's what you tell him. Tell him I'm repenting of being religious. I'm learning how to believe the good news of the gospel of Christ. And I'm here because nowhere does everybody get the gospel, least of all in the Bible Belt. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We pray your blessings upon us as we think about these things together. We pray that uh, we will take this word and bring it to bear upon our own souls and to figure out our misery index is somehow related to this. Sometimes the reason why we're just so sour, winged on a dill pickle kind of people, is we aren't looking at and trusting in and living according to the radical gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give. Um, a portion of that which you've entrusted to us and may we do it with joy and hilarity because we know that you have given to us the unspeakable gift of Christ and we pray in his name amen